Well, I have a, a fun fact for you to start our, our service that you may or may not know. But the United States allows non-citizens or certain foreign nationals, expats, to join the United States military. Now, there are certain restrictions placed on those who are foreign nationals who join the military. They are not allowed to serve as officers in the military. In other words, those in the upper levels of leadership. They are also not allowed to have access to, to classified or, or secret information. Uh, so they may have a similar job as someone who is a citizen, that they could have access to that information, but non-citizens are, are not permitted. You might be wondering, why are those restrictions in place? Well, the reason is because there may be questions about the true loyalty of those who are not yet citizens. And maybe they still have family or friends back in their, their country of birth. So in a time of testing, a time of conflict, a time of, of war, perhaps there's questions of whether they will be fully loyal to the United States. And maybe they would be tempted to be more loyal to their, their home country, their country of birth, where they have friends and family still living. Uh, even if these people truly love and appreciate the, the United States, there is an understanding that they may have a divided heart. They may feel torn in two directions, toward the U.S. on, on one hand, but also towards their, their home country and perhaps friends and family and relationships that are, are still there. There's a recognition with these policies that it takes time to develop new loyalties. Now you can go ahead and turn with me in your, your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. You're going to be at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 through uh, Exodus 14, 31. And so even as I already mentioned today, last week we, we saw the Lord redeem Israel from Egypt. We see Pharaoh kick out the nation of Israel from Egypt and their departure begin. Well, that, that continues this week as Israel journeys out of Egypt and into the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Yet, what we see in this text is despite the Lord's amazing work of redemption, these plagues that he has visited on Egypt, we find that the people of Israel have divided hearts. They do not have a wholehearted allegiance or, or loyalty to the Lord. As soon as Pharaoh and his army begin to chase after them, their first thought is to abandon the Lord and return to Egypt. They have divided hearts. Well, what we see in the Israelites is not totally unlike what we experience in the Christian life. When you became a Christian, you declared that Jesus is Lord and pledged your allegiance and your loyalty to him. You likely did that publicly by being baptized after you declared that allegiance to him. But if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that your sinful flesh still tugs at your heart. There are times when you are tempted to abandon the Lord. It takes time to grow in your loyalty and commitment to God. This is the, the process of sanctification, the process of growing in holiness. And so we'll see today that the Lord was patient and kind to the people of Israel, even, in, even with their divided hearts. And he once again demonstrated his power that they might grow in their trust of him and their allegiance to him. So the main idea from this text is that God sovereignly rescues, protects, and cares for his people. And he demands your wholehearted allegiance. God sovereignly rescues, protects, and cares for you. And he demands your wholehearted allegiance. 
So I have four points for us to consider that main idea this morning. The first is following the Lord. The second is challenging the Lord. The third is the triumph of the Lord. And then finally is fearing the Lord. So first, let's look at this idea of following the Lord. Uh, So we're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. But as I read these first few verses, notice the emphasis that is placed on the Lord's leadership of his people. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them through the road along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahirah between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Several times in this text, it's mentioned that the Lord led the people or the Lord went ahead of the people or the pillar of cloud and fire never left the front of the people. Uh, The implication is certainly that the Lord was leading his people, but that also by implication, his people should be following him. They were to to follow the leadership of the Lord. He rescued them from Egypt. He is, is leading them out from Egypt and he's calling his people to place their faith and their their trust in him. At the same time that God was leading his people and calling them to follow him, he was committed to be present with his people. The visible representation of God's presence was the pillar of cloud to lead his people during the day, the pillar of fire that led his people by night. And so I think sometimes we often just think of these as as visible signs of the Lord's presence. It's how like the Israelites knew where they were supposed to go and just went in front of them and, and led them. And they certainly did do those things. But that was not all that was going on with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They were also signs of God's tender care for his people. In Psalm 105, verse 39, we read that the cloud was a covering for the Israelites. It did not just just lead them, but it protected them from the, the fierce sun of the desert. You all live here in the UAE. You can appreciate the fact that without some cloud cover to protect from the fierce sun, how would you be able to travel by day? How would you be able to be out in the midst of the day walking from one place to another? At the the, the same time, the pillar of fire, we read in this text, provided light for the people to see. Presumably it provided heat in the the cool of the, the desert night. These were not just the way that the Lord showed the people which way to walk. 
These were, these were the Lord's care for his people. God was communicating that he was leading his people, but also that he was sovereignly caring for his people. He was communicating that he was, was present with his people, and they had no need to fear. God was caring for them. God was providing for them. A Christian, just briefly, this should be an encouragement to you, because as Christians... You know that today God is present with you even in a much greater way than he was present with the people of Israel by the cloud and the fire and later as he he dwelled in the the tabernacle in the temple. God is present with you today by his spirit. He's with you always. The the Holy Spirit to lead and, and guide you, to give you an understanding of scripture, to help grow you in holiness. And God is with you. As we read in these, these first few verses of Exodus, or from our text, I should say, you may be wondering why the Bible mentions that Moses takes the bones of Joseph with them on their journey. Perhaps an odd detail to include. Perhaps you're thinking that seems like an odd thing to do. If you remember, before Joseph died, so Joseph was the one who first came to the land of Egypt from the sons of Israel. He was sold into slavery in Egypt, eventually rose to second in command of Egypt. And then his family followed him when the, that severe famine hit the whole earth. They, they came and followed Joseph to Egypt. Well, when Joseph died, he had his brothers promise that they would bring his bones with them when they one day departed from Egypt. Joseph had his brothers make this promise to him. And the reason that he did this is because he had absolute confidence that God would fulfill his promise to bring the people out of the land of Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. He had absolute confidence that they would bring him, bring, that God would bring them out into the, uh, the land of Canaan. And so verse 19 of Exodus chapter 13 highlights the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise. And we see uh, the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise, but we also see the unwavering faith of, of Joseph. And Joseph, who may, remained loyal to God in the midst of extraordinarily difficult situations in his own life, He did not seem to doubt the Lord in the midst of his slavery, in the midst of his time in prison in in Egypt. And he has an unwavering faith that God will bring the people out from the land of Egypt. His allegiance and his faith did not waver. Joseph responded to God in faith, and in doing so, he provides a contrast to what we see in the people of Israel in, in these verses. But he also... He also provides a model for them to follow. These Israelites who are gripped by divided hearts have the bones of Joseph, the one who remained faithful to the Lord in the midst of extraordinary difficult situations, going on their journey with them. And in the opening verses that we, that we just read of our text this week, the people of Israel look a little bit, a little bit like Joseph. They follow the Lord into the wilderness in verse 4 of, of Exodus chapter 14, we see that they obeyed the Lord and turned back and camped in front of the sea. They were listening to what the Lord was telling them to do. But yet at the same time, there were hints of trouble in these first few verses. There were already hints of the people's divided hearts. Uh, Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18, says that the reason God led them the long way into the wilderness, not, the, not by the short road, by the land of the Philistines, was because God knew that if they faced war, they would be tempted to flee back to Egypt. God knew the people's faith and trust in him was frail. 
It seemed that despite the amazing signs and wonders that God performed in Egypt, they were still not fully on board. Their hearts were were still divided. They were still not sure if this was the God that they were wholeheartedly committed to, to following, to placing their faith and their trust in. So what did God do in response to the people's divided hearts, their, their frail faith? He confronted the people with their greatest fear. Well, that's what we're going to think about here in the, the remainder of the sermon or the next part of the sermon. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon, which is challenging the Lord. So look with me at verse 5 of chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Well, at the heart of these verses that we just read are the questions of who will the Israelites serve? Who do they fear? Where does their loyalty and their allegiance lie? Notice that after Israel departs from Egypt, Pharaoh and his officials ask themselves, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. And they realize that they wanted the continual service of Israel. They're not so sure about letting a whole nation of slaves go free. They have second thoughts. And what Pharaoh was doing by chasing after the people of Israel was challenging the Lord for the service and loyalty of the people of Israel. He was not willing to to let them go. To whom does Israel belong? Pharaoh or the Lord? Of course, this was connected to Pharaoh's pride that we have become so familiar with on our, our journey through Exodus. It seems that at least part of the decision to chase after Israel was motivated by his pride. We read in verse 8 that the Israelites were going out from Egypt defiantly, not as humble servants, but seemingly as a victorious nation. They had just plundered the nation of Egypt by asking them for their gold and silver. And it seems that this was more than Pharaoh could bear. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, He gave him over to the pride of his heart so that he might pursue the Israelites and that God might triumph over Pharaoh. So that God would be glorified. And as he says in verse 4, so that all the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, if you want a picture of the, the power of sin, you don't have to look much further than Pharaoh. Sin is deceitful. And the sinful desires of your flesh are powerful. And Pharaoh's pride remained despite all that had happened to him. Despite all the plagues that had fallen on the nation of, Israel, of Egypt. Despite all the things that you would think as an outside observer would lead him to humble himself. But friends, just like Pharaoh did not want to let Israel go, your sin does not want to let you go. Just as Pharaoh did not want to let go of the pride that was there in his heart and humble himself before the Lord, uh, so you do not want to let go of the sin at times that is in your heart. Friends, putting sin to death is a work of the Spirit of God. It also requires you to, to fight. It doesn't go passively into the night. We must resist it. Sin does not simply disappear. You must work by the, the Spirit of God to put it to death. Well, in Exodus, as we've seen, Pharaoh repeatedly challenges the supremacy of the Lord. Pharaoh wanted to be number one. He wanted to be supreme. He wanted to be in charge. But more than that, Pharaoh was competing with the Lord for the hearts of the people of Israel. Pharaoh was competing with the Lord for the hearts of the people of Israel. Whom would Israel serve? Who did they belong to? Let's look down in chapter 14 and in verses 10 through 12. When Israel saw Pharaoh and his army approaching, they cry out to the Lord. Now that sounds good at first, but we quickly realize that this is not a cry of dependence and faith on the Lord. It's made clear by what they say to Moses. They accuse Moses, and by implication, they accuse the Lord of simply bringing them out into the wilderness to die. They say in verse 12 that it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I don't presume that all of you will be familiar with this term, uh, but there is a term that I'm familiar with called a fair weather fan. A fair, good, a good weather, fair weather fan. It refers to people who only want to root for their sports teams as long as those sports teams are doing well. So if there will be fans of the team as long as things are going good, as long as that team is, is winning, when the weather is fair, in other words. It's, a, it's a, something of a metaphor, a play on words. But these people do not stay fans. They do not stay loyal to their team when the team has a bad year or a few bad seasons. When the team takes a turn for their worse, their loyalty kind of goes out the window. And they change their loyalty to another team who is doing well. And that is what it means to be a, a fair weather fan. That seems to be a good description of Israel when it comes to the Lord. Israel was content to follow the Lord when things seemed to be going well. But as soon as, as Pharaoh and his army were closing in, they had second thoughts. Uh, they were willing to go where the grass seemed greener. Uh, really, it seems like they still saw Pharaoh as more powerful. They, had, they certainly had a greater fear of Pharaoh than the Lord at least in the text that we were reading just then. Instead of trusting that the Lord would continue to deliver them, they were certain that Pharaoh and his army were going to destroy them. And so they desired to serve the one whom they most feared, Pharaoh. Their hearts were divided. Their faith was weak. Their allegiance to God merely temporary. 
they had gone out of Egypt defiantly. But their confidence, their allegiance to God, and their trust in him vanished at the first sign of trouble. They were a fair-weather people. Brothers and sisters, whatever you fear most is the thing that you will ultimately serve. Whatever you fear most is the thing that you will ultimately serve and give your devotion to. It is the thing that you will place your faith and your confidence in. If you fear the judgment of of others most, their ridicule or their disapproval, or if you fear the shame of embarrassment, brothers and sisters, you will become a people pleaser. You will seek to please others, whether that's a spouse, your children, friends, a boss, co-workers, fill in anybody else that you can think of. You will seek to please them far more than you seek to please the Lord. You will become a servant of others, a slave to their approval. You will be willing to do whatever it takes, even sin, to keep the approval of others. You will be slow to humble yourself and ask forgiveness of of others because it is so hard to your pride to admit that you were wrong, to, to have the shame of others knowing that you were wrong. If you fear not having enough money or being in need, Perhaps if you fear just simply not having enough money to buy all the the comforts of this life that you would like, you will end up serving money instead of the Lord. If you fear losing your job more than you fear the Lord, you will listen and obey your manager when he tells you to act dishonestly. You will be willing to, to lie and to cheat to get ahead at work. When you fear money more than the Lord, you will certainly not be generous to others. The generosity of the Lord will not be reflected in your, in your own life. And you will prioritize your job over your relationship with the Lord, over your relationship with your church family. If you fear being alone, you'll be willing to date and perhaps marry someone who is not a Christian. You will serve whoever shows romantic interest in you rather than serving the Lord. If you fear death or aging, you will give yourself over to all the latest health and fitness trends in an effort to stay forever young. What you fear most reveals what you love the most or what you trust in the most. You may not see these things when life is going well. These fears may stay below the surface. But those fears and where your confidence is are revealed when things go wrong. When, metaphorically speaking, Pharaoh and his army are chasing after you in the wilderness. If you fear the judgment of others, it may mean that what you love most is the esteem of others. And you trust that is what is ultimately going to bring you joy and satisfaction. If you fear losing your job or financial insecurity most, it may reveal that you love money or trust that is what can bring you the security and the comfort that you treasure. Brothers and sisters, Christians are called to fear the Lord and love the Lord and trust the Lord most of all. Anything you fear more than the Lord or trust more than the Lord or love more than the Lord is called an idol. Idols are not just made of wood and stone. They're not just statues we bow down to. It is anything our heart is willing to trust and serve and love and fear more than the Lord. Your fears and your loves and your desires can reveal the idols of your heart because they reveal what you ultimately trust in and find your security in. The famous theologian and reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. 
The human heart is an idle factory, just ready to spit out one after the other. It's just ready to give you something that you will fear and entrust in more than the Lord. And your fear reveals those idols. But brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, God will not leave the idols of your heart unchallenged. And that is his kindness to you. What did Israel love the most? It seemed to be their own physical comfort and safety. We're going to go back and serve Pharaoh as long as he doesn't put us to death. Hanging out here in the wilderness serving the Lord when Pharaoh's army is chasing after us does not look so good. And because they they loved their physical comfort and safety the most, who did they fear the most? They feared Pharaoh the most because Pharaoh and his army seemed like a threat to their physical safety. He seemed like a threat to their comfort. I think it is interesting that God knew that Israel would be tempted to turn back to Egypt if they faced war, right? That's why he took them the long road around and not by the Philistines. But what did the Lord do instead of taking the people of Israel by the road towards the Philistines? He confronted Israel with their greatest fear. He confronted them with an even greater army, the army of Egypt, an army which they had no way out from. They were pinned in by the sea. There was no way of escape. They could not flee. Now, they should have trusted in God's protection, as all of Exodus has been about God's triumph over Egypt. They had been witnesses to these these ten plagues. Still, they feared Egypt the most. The, The idol of the heart was made even more clear by God confronting them with their greatest fear and God confronting them with the army of Egypt. He was exposing and confronting the idols of the people's heart. He was exposing and confronting their divided heart and calling them to place his trust, their trust, in him. And friends, this was the Lord's kindness to Israel. It is far worse for God to leave the idols of your heart unexposed and unchallenged. To let you go comfortably on as if nothing is wrong with your relationship with him. Pharaoh was given over to his pride. And as we will see in just a moment, it led to his destruction. Friends, you don't want to be given over to the idols of your heart. So recognize that the trials of your own life may be the Lord's discipline, helping you to see the idols of your heart and helping you to place your faith and your trust in the Lord, to give him your wholehearted allegiance and devotion. If you are a Christian, God intends the trials of your life for your good. He may be exposing the idols of your heart. Well, Moses told Israel what they needed to learn to do in verses 13 and 14. And that was to not fear the things of this world. To stand firm in their faith and see and trust in the Lord's salvation. He told them in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. In other words, Israel, you will not be saved and you have not been saved so far by your own efforts. It will be a work of the Lord. Have faith. God is on your side. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is is true for you. Listen to these verses from the end of Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, you can trust in the Lord. He has all power, and he has triumphed over all enemies. That brings us to the third point of the sermon is the triumph of the Lord. So we've seen following the Lord, challenging the Lord, and now the triumph of the Lord. Well, despite the divided hearts of the people of Israel, God was gracious to them, and he powerfully accomplished salvation for the people. He split the waters of the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry land. So as we read through these next few verses, just notice how much emphasis is placed on the fact that it is the Lord who is acting, and it is the Lord who is saving his people. Look with me at verse 15 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. One scholar, one biblical scholar writing on these verses, a man by the name of Walter Kaiser, wrote this. The double nature of God's glory in salvation and judgment, the double nature of God's glory in salvation and judgment, which later appears so frequently in Scripture, cannot be more graphically depicted. God said the reason that he would harden Pharaoh's heart is so that he might receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his his army as they face God's judgment. God's glory was seen in both his salvation of his people as they were delivered through the Red Sea as the waters were parted and they walked through on dry land, but also in the, the judgment that he inflicted on Pharaoh as when they were in the midst of the sea, the waters crashed back down. And they were drowned. At first, God's glory was displayed in the salvation of his people. Notice in in verses 19 through 20, 
that in response to the people's fear of the approaching Egyptian army, the presence of the Lord moved from in front of the Israelites where it had been leading them to behind them to protect them from the Egyptian army. And God's presence provided darkness for the people of Egypt, light for his people, and it kept the Egyptian army at bay all night. What an amazing picture of God's sovereign love and and his care for his people. God's presence acted as a shield for his people, and then he parted the waters of the Red Sea that they may walk through and find salvation on the other side. God sovereignly accomplished the salvation of his people. And brothers and sisters, know that there is nothing that can harm you unless the Lord permits it. And just as we read from Romans 8, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Robert Murray McShane, a a Scottish pastor from a couple centuries back, had this to say about God's presence and care. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your defender. He prays and pleads on your behalf so that no accusation of the enemy will stand against you. Your eternal destiny is safe. Your eternal destiny is secure and assured because the Lord is with you. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is praying and he is pleading on your behalf. God's glory is seen in the salvation of his people. God's glory is also seen in in his judgment of Egypt. God made his name known and he received glory by triumphing over Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. Perhaps the most powerful military force in the world at this time. So we see in verses 24 and 25, the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. And what was the response of the Egyptians to all this work of the Lord? Look at verse 25. It accomplishes just what the Lord said. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. God made his name known, and he made his power known, and he was not done. While the Egyptians were in the the middle of the Red Sea, while they were chasing after Israel, he brought the waters back on them and covered and drowned the entire army in the sea. Not one of them survived. This is like the football match that ends 15 to 0. The boxing match that ends with a first second, not just a first round, but like a first second knockout. It was complete domination. To go back to that quote I gave just a second ago from Walter Kaiser, the double nature of God's glory and salvation and judgment, which later appears so frequently in Scripture, cannot be more graphically depicted. One of those places where it appears again, and the place where it is most clearly seen, is at the cross. The double nature of God's glory and salvation and judgment is nowhere more clearly seen than at the cross. It is often said that it is at the cross where God's mercy and God's wrath meet, or where God's salvation and God's judgment meet, or where love, the love of God, and God's justice meet. It's because at the cross, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, God the Son, served the just sentence sentence for sin that sinners deserved. 
that you and I deserve. God's holiness, his perfection, his glory demands that sin be dealt with. Sin must be judged. God cannot be God if he tolerates sin. But in order to show mercy to guilty sinners, God poured out his wrath on God the Son, Jesus Christ, and said, Jesus took the judgment you deserve. Jesus died as a substitute for all those who would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, who would give him their wholehearted allegiance and trust. Jesus died that you might receive mercy and forgiveness. So just like God made a way of escape for Israel through the sea, he made a way of escape for you from his wrath at the cross. Mercy and judgment meet at the cross. You receive mercy. Jesus received the judgment that you deserve. But both serve to magnify God's glory. The glory of his holiness and his justice. And the glory of his mercy and his love. Friends, know this. Be assured of this. That one day, God will be glorified in you. God will be glorified in you. If you are here and not a Christian... Know that if you choose to continue to reject God, like we see Pharaoh doing throughout Exodus, if you continue to reject God and his offer of mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, God will one day be glorified in your judgment. His holiness and his justice will be magnified when he judges your sin and gives you the just punishment that your sin deserves, which would be an eternity in hell. But friends, it is God's desire that all people come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires that you repent of your sin and place your faith, your wholehearted allegiance, your loyalty in Jesus Christ. If you do that, God will be glorified to display the riches of his kindness and his mercy to you. His judgment for sin will not be diminished. It will simply be taken by Jesus Christ for you. God's wrath will be poured out on Jesus instead of on you. The double nature of God's glory and salvation and judgment is so clearly seen at the cross. And so, friends, if you are here and not a Christian, I plead with you today to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Place your trust in him. Follow him. Give him your wholehearted allegiance and faith. And that takes us to the final point of the sermon, which is fearing the Lord. Remember what we've seen so far. Israel was of a divided heart. They quickly forgot their bitter years of service in Egypt, those years of of slavery. And when threatened, they desired to go back to Egypt. But God was at work. He confronted them with their greatest fear. Pharaoh, the army of Egypt, he demonstrated his superiority and supremacy over their greatest fear by defeating Pharaoh and his armies. And he showed his love and care for his people by bringing them unharmed through the Red Sea. And now we see the results of all this. Look at with me at verses 30 and 31 of Exodus chapter 14. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. The people saw God's great power that defeated their greatest fear. And they came to fear and believe in the Lord, the one who triumphs. Brothers and sisters, this is what God was after. He was after the complete allegiance of the people. He was after their fear and their trust and their faith. He was after their wholehearted loyalty. He was after their hearts. 
Well, like someone who takes an oath of citizenship and renounces their, their old loyalty to their country of birth, to their, their home country, their original country, and gives their loyalty to a new country, the country where they take a new oath of citizenship. The people of Israel seem to be switching their allegiance. God was leading them to fully forsake Egypt and the things that they had learned there for the last 430 years and wholeheartedly follow him. God turned the sinful fear of the people, a fear of the things of this world and the powers of this world into a a holy fear, a right fear of him. What is a holy fear of the Lord? What does it mean to rightly fear the Lord? Well, in his book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord, which we actually have there in our library that you can check out later today, Michael Reeves has this to say about a right fear of the Lord. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. The nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered faith and praise. Brothers, that's what it is to have a holy fear of the Lord. Again, if you, if you know the history of Israel, their, their fear of the Lord fades, as does their, their faith in him. The very next chapter, just a few days after this, they grumble against the Lord when they get thirsty in the wilderness. I think this teaches us two things. One, as we've been thinking about the last few weeks, it reminds us of our need to be continually reminded of the Lord's goodness and kindness to us, of the Lord's salvation, of his mercy, of his grace, of his power. We are a forgetful people, and we need to be continually reminded of God's character. We need to be continually renewed by God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to spend time in God's word. Get to know his word. Be renewed by his word. We need to be continually renewed by God's word and reminded of who he is if we are to fear him rightly. It also teaches us that though the Red Sea delivered Israel from the Egyptians, it did not deliver them from their sin. It did not deliver them from their sin. The idols of their heart still exerted much power. The idols of the nations around them would eventually draw their hearts away. It would tempt them to abandon this wholehearted allegiance to the Lord that we see for a time in our verses. But church, take courage because you are new covenant believers. You repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are new covenant believers. God has written his law on your hearts. Jesus has fully and finally defeated sin and death. He has wiped it out just as thoroughly as God wiped out the Egyptian army on the sea. Waiting for that day, for that victory to be made kind of final. We're waiting as we just sung till the day that we go home. We're almost home, but we're not quite there yet. But brothers and sisters, you do not just have the pillar of cloud and fire to lead and guide you. You have his presence within you. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. You have died to sin and been made alive to righteousness because Jesus died for you in your place. You still need to be reminded of God's character. You still need to be renewed by God's word. But the power of God at work, but you have the power of God at work in you and you can rightly fear the Lord. God has given you the provision that you need. 
You have died to sin. He has given you his spirit. He has given you his word that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. God has conquered the greatest enemies of sin and death. And he has conquered them just as thoroughly as he conquered the, the Egyptian army at the shores of the Red Sea. Brothers and sisters, by rescuing you from your bondage to sin and death and by so many other acts of faithfulness and mercy to you, God has demonstrated his power, he has demonstrated his love, and he has demonstrated his care and his presence. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. How will he with him then withhold any good thing from you? Brothers and sisters, when you are prone to doubt, remember God's mercy and faithfulness to you. He does not need to further prove himself for you to rightly fear him and for you to give him your full trust and allegiance. He has proven his commitment to you. and He calls you to faithfully follow him. Let's pray.